Did you know that the phrase or the question, what would Jesus do, has sparked a lot of debate in Christian circles? If you have been a Christian for uh, any real length of time, or you've been involved in the church for any length of time, or you've even maybe known a Christian sometime in the last 20 or 30 years, you are probably aware of the question, what would Jesus do? And you've seen the letters WWJD on a bracelet that lots of people uh, liked, especially liked to wear. And I think there's probably still people that wear these WWJD bracelets. But did you know that that's not just a universally accepted phrase? There's some people that uh, love it, and there's some people that don't think it's a helpful phrase. Now, those who love it think it makes sense. What would Jesus do? If you're going into a situation, you would ask the question, what would Jesus do? That's a good question to ask. Jesus is a great example. In fact, he is the best example in all the world of how to live a godly life. And so asking the question, what would Jesus do, is a genuinely good question. Now, others think it's sometimes a bit of an unhelpful question because, uh, and you don't need me to tell you this, you're not Jesus. And so we can't always apply the question, what would Jesus do, to ourselves Because your job is not to unquestionably never marry, raise no children, travel the countryside with 12 buddies, get famous, get in trouble with the law, and eventually be killed as an enemy of the state. That's not likely your call in life. More notably, though, your job is not to be the savior of the world. And so I think there's some validity to maybe some of the criticisms, but those who are not fans of the bracelet have suggested that maybe a better bracelet might be WDJCYTD. Uh, which stands for, what did Jesus command you to do? It's a little more precise, right? What did Jesus command you to do? W-D-J-C-Y-T-D. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue so well. I have to reference my notes to to remember that. Uh, And so, although it might be slightly more refined, it might not translate to a new bracelet. But I want to say, too, is asking the question, what would Jesus do? Is that a wrong question? No, I don't think it's a wrong question. I think it's a great question to ask. We should be asking the question, what would Jesus do? Is it wrong to wear a WWJD bracelet? Absolutely not. If you have one, you rock it, okay? And you can still get them on Amazon. I checked. Uh, But do the questions that these critics have had of the WWJD phenomenon, do they have a point? I do think they have a bit of a point. We shouldn't reduce Jesus down to simply being a moral example for us. We must imitate Christ. That's scriptural. But is that it? So I'm not suggesting a new bracelet marketing campaign, uh, nor am I the inventor of this slight modification, but maybe a a, a happy medium for this. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do? Maybe a slightly more refined answer would be, or question would be, what did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? If you're a Christian, as you seek to follow and imitate Jesus, don't simply look at every hypothetical situation and say, what would Jesus do? Again, that's a fine thing to ask. But ask yourself the question, what did Jesus do? Even in the little things, it's good to think about what Jesus did, like what he actually did. Jesus is a real person. How did he spend his time? How did he treat people? Thinking of those things in that way should change the way that we live. It should change the way that we treat other people. It should change the way that we spend our time. But also, Jesus did a lot more than simply live a moral life. 
What Jesus not just hypothetically would do, but actually came into the world to do, just might change your life. Maybe it already has. And so I want to ask that question this morning as we look at the rest of Mark chapter 1. What did Jesus do? We'll see that Jesus does at least three things in our passage this morning that not only serve as an example for us where we could ask the question, what would Jesus do? But they also demonstrate the greatest news in the world because not just hypothetically, what would Jesus do? But what did Jesus do? And so the big idea from our passage this morning is that God's kingdom advances through prayer, preaching, and cleansing. God's kingdom advances through prayer, preaching, and cleansing. We'll use those as our markers along the way. Would you join me in standing as you're able for the reading of God's word? We are not mandated to stand as we read scripture, but it is a good reminder to ourselves and to one another uh, around us that this is God's word. This is our authority, and we can be thankful to God because he speaks to us through his word. So again, I'll be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. So what did Jesus do? Well, first we see Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. Prayed. Remember from what we saw last week, Jesus had been up late into the night healing the many who came to him. It said the entire town came to Simon's door where Jesus was staying and he healed many. And so he was up late, yet he still gets up early and gets alone to pray. Now, a big looming question on this, in this text or anytime we bump into Jesus praying is the question, if Jesus is God, Right? He is God's son. He is God in the flesh. Why would he need to pray? Well, I'm encouraged to see that Jesus does pray. A prayer was not below Jesus. He understood, actually better than anyone in the whole world, how important fellowship with God is. 
how important it is to go to God in the intimate fellowship and conversation that we have in prayer. And so, yes, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And so prayer is a big part of what he did. And so knowing that this is something that Jesus did ought to be a great reminder right off the hop for us to understand that we need to make prayer a priority in our own lives. If we think truly about the mind-boggling privilege that it is to pray, that we can commune with the God of the universe, and he wants us to do it, why aren't we praying constantly? One of my favorite quotes on prayer is one that I've shared many times by Robert Murray McShane as he documented in his journal just of a, a, what seemed to be an ordinary day for him. He said, rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? Who would not rise early to meet such company? I can give you an answer to that question, uh, me, a lot of the time. Too often, it's me. I, I, I struggle to think of prayer in this way, that it is seeking God and finding him. If you resonate with that, let's not let that be so. Because if we don't make prayer a priority, we are naive to think that it's just going to happen. I don't know, maybe you are far more holy than me, but we don't just fall into prayer. You're not just sitting there and then all of a sudden you're like, man, where did three hours go? I just was praying. I, I didn't, I don't know, that doesn't happen to me. Jesus demonstrates, Jesus demonstrates the need to be disciplined in prayer, making it a priority. He gets up early. He gets away. And it may sound overly pragmatic, but we need to ask ourselves those questions. What disciplines can we put into our own lives to actually make prayer happen? Is the only time where you can honestly have focused time to be with the Lord, is that early in the mornings? Then do it. Right? Get up. Make it a priority. If this means that you have to go to bed early, do it, right? You need to watch one less episode of that show that's no good anyway, do it. And this isn't me slinging mud at you. This is me preaching to myself as much as anyone in the room. But I know, I know myself. And I know that if I can't get up to devote time to prayer because I'm not willing to give up some evening entertainment or because I'd rather snooze my alarm five times, that communicates something very clear, at least to myself about what actually matters most to me. Now, do you need to get up early to pray? Is that the lesson here from Mark chapter 1, 35 to 37? Is that the lesson? Is this the practical thing that you must only pray in the morning? No, God doesn't care exactly which time of the day you pray. We're not mandated to do that. But he does care that you pray. And I think if we're honest, probably for most people in the room, Getting up early would probably be the best time. It's not to be prescriptive, but I think it would do us all a lot of favors because our days get consumed with so many things. And so make the most important things happen first. Jesus models that. Now, we don't need to literally go out into the wilderness as Jesus does, but maybe you could, right? I mean, Jesus is in Capernaum. There's not like, he's not like right out into the wilderness wilderness. He's, he's out in desolate places. He's getting away from people. Now, not too many people I know can just 
pop out of bed and within 30 seconds they're in like deep profound prayer and you know surrounded by distractions just completely block those things out again maybe you're not like me but I'd imagine you're more like me uh, than we think and so do what you need to do to be deliberate and disciplined in your prayer maybe you need to get outside for a walk and pray Maybe you need to pray out loud. Maybe you want to write out your prayers. Maybe you need to pray with someone else. Maybe you don't have your phone anywhere near you as you pray. Get to a literal or figurative desolate place if that means it will help you pray. And we can think of a hundred other practical things here. Seek accountability. What if you had a fellow member of the church call you at a certain time or you call them at a certain time when you wanted to devote time to prayer? What if to jumpstart some of these disciplines, you went to a friend's house that you know has a robust prayer life to encourage you both as you pray together? That would be time and gas well spent. We gather every other Sunday evening to pray. Come to that. We connect virtually every Wednesday morning to pray. Join us in that. We pray multiple prayers each Sunday morning, as you've already heard. Don't just listen as a spectator, but participate and add your amen. You get the idea. Do whatever it takes to pray. Jesus did it. We need to do it. Don't minimize this application. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who feels like they've got to just the ceiling. You know, I've, I've peaked out on prayer. I think I've, I think I've figured it out. Right? Don't leave here today without making that commitment to grow in your prayer time. Right? Say to yourself, make this commitment. I will do what it takes to speak to the author and creator of all things. He is my father. He invites me to come to him anytime about anything. I will discipline myself to prioritize speaking to the one being in the universe who has all knowledge, all power, and all wisdom. I will eliminate distraction to communicate with the most attentive ear that has ever listened to the words that are coming out of my mouth. And so do you want to pray more? Here's an even more direct application. Come back tonight. Come for the meal at five, but more importantly, come back for our prayer service at six. Charles Spurgeon wrote these challenging words. He said, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general, till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And so it almost feels anecdotal as we read this passage. We can almost just breeze over the fact that Jesus is praying, but that's, that's the first answer to the question we see. What did Jesus do? Well, he prayed. And we're going to see this a few more times through the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus gets away to pray. And he always does this in the context of really hard things he's going through in his ministry. When things get tough, prayer was not below Jesus. It's a priority for him, and so may it be the same for us. Now, what else did Jesus do? Jesus prayed and Jesus preached. We see Simon and the others uh, go to track Jesus down. The description I have in the ESV says that they searched for him. It's a, it's a bit of a soft translation for that word searched. Maybe the most accurate word we could say would be hunted. They went looking for Jesus. They were hunting for him. They're like, where did this guy go? Right? And finally, they find him and they say to him, everyone is looking for you. This has a tone of a rebuke. They say effectively, Jesus, you're famous. Right, Literally, the entire town the night before came to Simon's door to be healed. 
So they're saying, Jesus, you're famous. Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing out here? The whole town is looking for Jesus, this miracle worker. But we see over and over that Jesus' mission is not simply to be a miracle worker. We see how his authority and his power is demonstrated in the miracles that he performs. And we're about to see him perform more miracles. We see him casting out demons in verse 39. We see in verses 40 to 45 him healing this leper. So he's not totally throwing that out. But Jesus knows that miracles alone are not the answer. They demonstrate that the kingdom of God is coming near. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so Jesus says to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Think about this for ourselves. Our best efforts and most redeeming qualities as a church can't save anyone. It's a sobering thought. Only the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And this this is a good reminder, not just for church leaders, but for church members. Ready? You can write this one down. What you win them with, you win them to. That's not original to me, but remember that one. It's a good one. What you win them with, you win them to. If Jesus wins people with simply miraculous acts, but they don't repent and believe, as he said, that's his message that he came to preach, they aren't saved. We need to ask ourselves the question, church, what are we tempted to try to win people with other than the gospel? Do we try to win them with a great performance or a spectacle? Do we try to win them with a dynamic speaker who's both funny and challenging, goes deep but keeps it short? Right? Maybe we try to win people with uh, a perfect welcoming ministry that just so wonderfully balances you know, engaging the extroverts but not intimidating the introverts. Now, remember, these are good things. These are good things, right? We are blessed to have talented musicians. I spent a lot of time preparing the sermon that it might be clear and helpful. We need to be warm and welcoming people. But nothing replaces the gospel. What we win them with, we win them to. We have no business trying to win anyone with an experience We need to win souls with Christ. Jesus knew that the miraculous deeds, as central as they were to his ministry, weren't enough. He needed to preach. He came to proclaim a message of salvation. And let that be applied to yourself individually too, Christian. Gospel proclamation does not only happen from behind a pulpit. God's kingdom advances through prayer and through the proclamation of the gospel. This happens every time the gospel is proclaimed. Every time we share the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and he commands us to repent and believe in him, to trust in him for salvation. Christian, you have been commissioned as a herald of the king. Right? We could easily imagine, you know, if a king came and said, here, I need you to deliver this message. We would think, yeah, I should probably do that. Well, this is exactly what we've been giving, church. Who can you share the gospel with this week? Remember, this is the good news of Jesus Christ has the power to save souls. Let's make that a priority in each of our own lives. 
And let's sandwich those first two points together just as another point of application for you. Prayer and preaching. Pray for the preaching of God's word that happens behind a pulpit. This pulpit and pulpits all around our city and all around our world. I don't ask you to pray that so that I'd feel better about myself. I'm asking you to do the God-ordained, kingdom-advancing act of prayer about the God-ordained, kingdom-advancing act of preaching. Charles Spurgeon, again, the prince of preachers, as he was referred to, was asked once what the secret was to his success and his influence of his ministry. And you know what he answered? He said, my people pray for me. Jesus prayed, Jesus preached, and through these advanced God's kingdom. And finally, we see that Jesus cleansed. Jesus cleansed. We find this in verses 40 through 45. What happens here? It's a a story that if you've grown up in the church, we can hear it and uh, it kind of rolls over us because it feels familiar, right? A leper comes to Jesus. He begs to be healed. Jesus miraculously and instantly heals him. He then tells him to go to the priest and be declared clean. I mean, this is an important point that Jesus doesn't always just try to undermine the law. He's saying, go to the priest, be declared clean. And Jesus tells the man to, quite sternly, I'll add, not to tell others. Again, Jesus is not trying to gain a crowd for the sake of a crowd. He's not trying to gain a crowd because he can work miracles. Jesus is coming to heal hearts, not just diseases. Right? Even if healing diseases demonstrates his mercy and his power, his authority over disease and the restoration of God's kingdom. Well, at first glance, that's a, that's a pretty apt summary, right? That's it. I mean, it's a remarkable story, but within these, first, or with, within these verses, verses 40 to 45, again, we can become calloused to how startling and provocative and even offensive this interaction is. The more we see this story for all of its shocking beauty, the more it can change us. Now, leprosy is a general term, as we see it in Scripture, used to, to kind of capture a whole bunch of skin diseases, one of which is what we would know as leprosy or uh, Hansen's disease, as it's more technically called. Now, I don't claim to be a medical expert at all, but you don't need to be a doctor to see how horrific, even as an example disease, Hansen's disease is on people. It's a disease that attacks the nerves, which become swollen under the skin. Eventually, it can cause the affected areas to lose their ability to sense touch. Makes it so that you lose the ability to sense pain, and this can lead to terrible injuries like cuts and burns untreated. It wreaks more and more havoc on the body. Even just considering this one disease as an example, it's horrific. One doctor who uh, had worked to research and to treat this disease during the 20th century, he would send his patients home with cats. That was his prescription. He'd send them home with a cat and bury yourself for this. It's horrible uh, because these patients in third world countries, uh, they would fall asleep and because their body had no pain, no warning system, vermin would come and chew on them while they were sleeping. The doctor that treated this disease called leprosy a painless hell. 
as if it couldn't get worse, leprous people were then ostracized from society. They had to live alone. They had to live outside the camp. They had to wear torn clothes. They had to uh, let their hair hang loose. They would cover their face. And everywhere they went, if they went in public, they had to yell, cry out, unclean. Could you imagine how that would be received if every time today you had to stop at Walmart on the way home and you had to walk in and just declare, unclean, and everyone would scatter? Or if you went through a walk in the neighborhood, you had to be careful not to go too close to trees because you didn't want to sneak up on anyone. But everywhere you went, you just had to yell, unclean. This is not just a loss of only your health. It is that, but it's also a loss of your name. You're now just a leper. You lose your identity, your occupation, your habits, your family, your fellowship, your ability to worship. I hope none of you can even fathom the life sentence that this man stood under. To be honest, it's more like a death sentence, except you're not dead. In both the Bible and other documents from this time in history, lepers were described as living corpses, the walking dead. And so this is why we cannot overstate how provocative and offensive and even illegal It is that this leper would come to approach Jesus. He risks it all. He's got nothing left to lose. And so instead of crying out, unclean, he falls on his knees before Jesus and he begs him, if you will, you can make me clean. Other diseases needed healing. He needed cleansing. But did you notice his faith? He says, I know you can, but will you heal me? And look at how Jesus reacts. Every other person, bar none, every other person would recoil. If a leper came out of nowhere and fell in front of you and started yelling at you, you would run the other way. But what does Jesus do? Verse 41 says, moved with pity, He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. That is what Jesus did. It's not hard to understand how throughout history, leprosy was viewed as a sign of divine judgment. And it's not hard at all for us to see how leprosy, as a sample disease of what we're thinking about, is really a perfect illustration for sin. When we sin against God, we we do what he commands us not to do. We fail to do what he commands us to do. We become spiritually diseased. We become spiritually leprous. The disease of sin hides under the surface. It spreads, it destroys, it defiles, it isolates. I heard one pastor talk about how sin can make us fall for one of two horrific lies, which again, we can compare to leprosy. For some of us, it causes us to lose the feeling. Sin makes us not sense the harm. When we spiritually are walking dead in our sin, We think that there's nothing wrong with us. And if that's you here this morning and you're feeling blissfully ignorant of the sin that is killing you, you are sleeping and literally being eaten alive. 
I say to you this with as much love as I can possibly muster. Wake up. The leper in Mark 1 was under no illusions of his condition, but it terrifies me that you might be. You may even have grown up in the church. You may have mastered the art of hiding the sin that lurks underneath, but we all need to wake up and come to Jesus. He has the power to cleanse you from all of it. So that's one lie. The other lie is thinking that you are too far gone to be saved. Maybe you think that. Maybe you think, I'm too damaged. I'm too dirty. I'm beyond saving. Even if I'm savable, I'm not worth saving. Oh, friend, please don't miss this. You are savable, and you are absolutely worth saving. Jesus thinks so. I don't have words enough to communicate to you how much if you would come to Jesus and fall on your knees before him, how much he would be moved with pity for you. Not even for a millisecond would he recoil. This is what Jesus does. It's the perfect example of power and pity. Verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now that word there for pity, it may also, your Bibles may have it translated as he felt indignant or he, there was indignation, that he had a hatred. Now what would that hatred to be for? I mean, I think the only way we could understand that if that's the word is he hated what this man was going through. He was so grieved by this pain and suffering of this man that was kneeling in front of him. He felt this unbelievable pity. He, no matter what, had this strong emotion And we're reminded from the text that Jesus can cleanse the filthiest sinner. It's just what he does. There's multiple shocking reversals in this passage. Ordinarily, and this is why lepers had to stand 50 paces away from people, if you touched someone ceremonially unclean, you became unclean. It's just the way it worked. You couldn't touch a dead body. You couldn't touch someone with leprosy, because then you became unclean, and then you had to be cleansed yourself. Well, not so with Jesus. Everything that we would assume to be true gets flipped on its head here. Jesus touches an unclean person, and instead of him becoming unclean, what happens? The leper becomes clean. And don't miss the significance of this touch Jesus didn't have to touch him. Jesus could have said, whoa, buddy, stay back. I'll heal you from a distance, okay? That's not even, that thought doesn't even go into Jesus' mind here. He reaches down and touches him. One pastor, Kent Hughes, wrote of how significant this touch is. Even without the healing. We don't know this man's backstory, but if he had a wife, maybe he had long since given up hope of ever knowing the touch or embrace of the woman that he loved. If he had children, there was no goodnight kisses, there was no hugs, there was no touch. He was outside the camp. Hughes tells the story of his own pastoral ministry 
of a lonely man who he counseled, who was not part of a church. He had no family who cared for him or uh, he, he belonged to no church family. And he would go and get his hair cut every single week just to have someone touch him with no misunderstanding. I can't fathom what this man experienced as he fell before Jesus and felt the touch of someone that was so moved that wasn't recoiling from his presence. Not only did Jesus not recoil, not even flinch, he came closer. And this man felt the touch of Jesus and was healed instantly and completely. Friends, spend time reading over this story this week and think deeply and profoundly about this difference. This is the first time it's ever happened to me, and I'm not saying this for anything other than just, I've heard this story my whole life, but as I was preparing this sermon in this portion of my writing, I was moved to tears. That's never happened to me. I, I don't, I'm not a crier. But it's powerful what Jesus does. This man meant nothing to anyone, but he meant everything to Jesus. So Jesus comes closer and he touches him and he heals him. And understandably, this man is grateful beyond words. And it actually leads him to disobey Jesus' command to not go and tell. And this leads to the second reversal that we see in the text. This man, at the beginning of the story, was on the outside of society, literally in the wilderness. But because of what Jesus does for him, he is made clean. He's restored, not just in body, but even in society. He's brought back in. But then as the people collectively rush for a miracle, Jesus is then forced out, back to the outside, back into the wilderness. And so there's a precious and amazing foreshadowing that we see in this text of exactly what Jesus does for you if you are in Christ. He puts himself on the outside for you. Even though he never sinned, even though he is the only perfectly clean, when it comes to sin, the only perfectly clean person in all of history, he took on the curse that should have fallen on you. He took on your penalty, the penalty that you deserved for your sin. And when he would die on the cross, he died the death of a cursed criminal to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. Every part of our spiritual disease can fall on Christ. And if you would turn from your sin and trust in him, falling before him and calling out to him, Lord, cleanse me, you can be cleansed immediately and completely. We know that Jesus can do it. He demonstrated his power and his authority in stories like this, remarkable stories. No one could heal leprosy. Throughout even the Old Testament, it said that those healing leprosy and in the rabbinic tradition, it was the same as raising someone from the dead. But Jesus can do it. And even more perfectly, Jesus' power and authority is demonstrated in the fact that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead in victory. And his rising from the dead demonstrates that even death couldn't hold him. Even death couldn't defeat him. Even death doesn't have the last word. God's just wrath against sin has been satisfied 
in Christ. And so every sin, every last bit of sinful bacteria that threatens hell for you is nailed to the cross. This is why it matters very much to each and every one of us in this room, not just what Jesus would hypothetically do in a moral situation, but what Jesus actually did. Not only did he give us a model uh, of prayer and of preaching and of even this mercy, right? We can apply that and understand that. Jesus doesn't recoil from the people who are rejected from the world. As Christians, we should imitate that. We should love people that the world says these people are unlovable. But somehow, even more remarkable than what just Jesus would hypothetically do is what he actually did, what he came to do. It changes everything. Because even look at these examples. Prayer becomes possible because of Jesus. It's why we pray in the name of Jesus. We approach the creator and sustainer of the universe, not on our own merits. We would be doomed if that's how we tried to approach God. But we come completely on the merits of Jesus. When we preach, when we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim not a message of feel-good self-help. We preach and proclaim a savior who's good. And passages like this remind us of the glorious truth. And don't miss this. When you read Mark 1, uh, 35 to 45, who are you in the story? You're not Jesus. You and I are the lepers who because of our sin would be destined to a life crying out unclean. But the good news of the gospel is that we can know so clearly from God's word that we don't have to ask Jesus if he will cleanse us. If you come to Jesus, you can cry out to him, I know that you're willing. So willing that you would take my place and die for me. Make me clean. What did Jesus do? He didn't recoil even for a second. He was moved with compassion and he is moved with compassion towards you. He makes you clean through his own blood. And we can say and sing and remember, along with the hymn writer, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray. Oh God, we say that now to you. How marvelous, how wonderful that you would look at us, sinners condemned unclean, and see someone worth saving. But Lord, we know that so clearly that it didn't it wasn't too great a cost to give your own son to save our souls. And so, Lord, we pray that that would change everything about the way we live today. That we wouldn't simply imitate good morals, but that we would remember that what Jesus came to do, what Jesus actually did, makes prayer possible.
What Jesus came to do was to proclaim a good news that you've commissioned us to do the same. And you've given us your spirit to do that work. And God, what Jesus did to this leper 2,000 years ago is exactly the offer of grace that's held out to each and every one of us today. And so, Lord, we thank you for the amazing privilege it is to be your son, to be your daughter, because of what you did for us in Christ. We thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.